Hello, 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 and welcome back to Season 2 of The Wheelchair Activist. I am so excited to be starting Season 2 of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear all of the amazing guests that we have lined out. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I talk to some amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. Today, I am talking to Dr. Hannah Barham-Brown, who is the Deputy Leader of the UK Women's Equality Party and is a GP trainee. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation with Hannah and talk about all of the amazing work that she does. I know so many young people with disabilities are told from almost the day they're born that they're not expected to achieve much, which drives me insane. And so if I can help counter that narrative, I'm happy. I've done my job. Most companies, when they put out job adverts, are screaming out for, they want problem solvers and team build workers and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, you want a disabled person then? We don't have to approach politics in a kind of like barge in, win all the elections, yell at the other parties, get into government, scream at the prime minister on PMQs every week and then go away again. Like we don't have to do politics that way and we can shape it. You know what? Fine. I'll take your diversity quotas. But while I'm here, I'm going to kick your ass. Hannah, thank you so, so much for joining us on The Wheelchair Activist. I've been so excited to have this conversation with you because... I think you and I are some of those people that like we know each other on social media, but we've never spoken before. And it seems so odd because we have so many shared interests. I mean, just before we started recording, we talked about your t-shirt, which is from the Spark Company, which we both love and has like become a uniform for us both. But yeah, thank you so much for joining. Honestly, it's an absolute pleasure. I think what I've re- realized since you started coming out of COVID, I'm like seeing all these people that I've seen on Zoom or seen on social media and stuff. And then I'm realizing that actually that's an experience that as disabled people we've had for years and years and years because so many of our communities like meet on social media and live in that space and have done for far longer than a pandemic that actually I'm quite used to like meeting people years later and going, but I already know you. How- what? So, yeah, it's really lovely. Would you be able to tell our wonderful audience a little bit about you and what you do? Oh, um, I mean, it's probably quicker to tell you what I don't do. So um, I'm Hannah Barron brown I'm a GP registrar, which means that I hopefully will finish my training February 2023 or something um I took a quite scenic route into medicine in that initially I was going to be a war correspondent so I read English and theology with Arabic at Durham first um then my mum banned me because she said and I quote you'll get shot and end up in a wheelchair um so I'm not a war correspondent because my mum wouldn't let me and now I'm a wheelchair user anyway oh my Um, god I love that so much I could have had such a great story. Instead, I just have wonky joints. I was like, come on. Um, So after Durham, I went and studied pediatric nursing in Newcastle. um, Then eventually got into medical school at St. George's in London and did their post-grad medicine course. And it was all kind of going tickety-boo. But in my penultimate year of study there, um, I decided to run a half marathon for the British Heart Foundation as one of my brothers had sadly died waiting for a heart transplant, about to be relisted for a second heart transplant. Um, So he died. I decided I was going to raise lots of money in his memory, and this was going to be my magical processing thing. Um, 
And my kneecap started dislocating, like disappearing around the back of my leg. Other joints started really misbehaving. I'm incredibly stubborn. So I ran the half marathon anyway and seriously broke myself Um, and eventually was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which anyone who doesn't know, because quite a few doctors don't know, um, is a collagen disorder that means all my joints can like spontaneously dislocate for fun. Um, and it can, you know, gradually degenerate a little bit. Um, so I'd started medical school as a keen runner. I graduated on wheels, um, because it just became really evident that I wasn't going to cope with like ward rounds and all that kind of very active element of being a junior doctor. Um, so I'd had to crowd for my own wheelchair. Um, all of that was happening during the junior doctor's contract dispute and being quite gobby and liking comms and having planned to be a journalist. I'd got very involved in doing a lot of media work around that. Ended up being kind of pulled in by the British Medical Association um, and got very heavily involved with them and started using that organisation a little bit as a way to promote some of the things I'd realised were problems um, around disability rights. So actually, I think that's when you and I first kind of really got in contact was around um, trying to make cervical screening accessible in GP surgeries um, because less than 1% of GP surgeries have a hoist, uh, which is quite problematic if you're one of the quarter of a million hoist dependent wheelchair users in the UK. Um, so we, you know, like, so I did a lot of stuff with them. I, through my work with them, I was asked to go and speak at Women's Equality Party Conference um, in 2018 on a panel about women in health and women's health. Um, turned up to be a speaker at a panel um, at nine o'clock that morning, left at half four, a full member of the party. Six months later, I was a local council candidate in Leeds. And um, yeah, within about a year, I became deputy leader of the party. So I'm the first visibly disabled uh, deputy leader of a UK political party ever that we know of, which is kind of awesome and also really freaking annoying that it's taken this long, right? It, I shouldn't be the first. There should have been many before me. But, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I now spend a couple of days a week being a GP, learning how to be a GP. I spend other time doing stuff for the Women's Equality Party. And I've just got back from a couple of days in London working with them. And I also do a lot of kind of speaking and consultancy work nationally and internationally now, basically talking to organizations, often companies about why they should be employing more disabled people because we're freaking awesome and they're fools not to. So I have a lot of hats. I'm also <laughs> governor of the Motability Foundation. So that's another thing at the moment as well. <laughs> I think that is one of the best intros I have ever had on the podcast. And I think, you know, when I was planning this episode and to talk to you, I thought, I don't even know what to start with. Do I talk about her medical career and all of the issues that I'm sure you've come across? And now, do I talk about your political career and how interesting and how involved you are with that? But so I think let's start with a broader question. This is a question that I ask all of my guests and I'm aware it's a really big, it's quite a mean question, but what does disability mean to you? So disability to me means approaching the world in a different way from a different viewpoint. And I think that kind of difference element is really, it's not that we're lesser. It's not that we can't do things. It's just that we do things differently. And I think that perspective we bring 
is absolutely key. And it's something that more and more organizations are starting to realize that if they don't embrace it, that they're missing out on, you know, the purple pound and all that sort of stuff. They're also missing out on a mine of problem solving expertise that we bring because it's all we've ever known. Like if you and I try and get across London on the tube in a wheelchair, we can access what, less than a third of it? Mm, yeah, so if that. Exactly. So we're constantly problem solving every single day of our lives. And that's a skill that, you know, most companies, when they put out job adverts, are screaming out for. They want problem solvers and team build workers and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, you are a disabled person then, because we have no option. We are like nature's problem solvers. Um, so to me, it does mean difference, but it also means kind of opportunity and potential. Um, and that's potential, I really hope, more companies and society in general start to recognize and make the most of. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. I'm forever saying that disabled people are the best problem solvers and creative problem solvers. And I'm really interested because obviously with medicine and particularly being a GP, and I should say that my my mom is a GP, so I'm aware of the types of things that you're coming to contact with every day. But you know, you have someone coming in with a list of symptoms and it is essentially like a problem to solve. It's a puzzle to solve. So how has your disability, do you think, and your background of disability influenced your approach to medicine? Because I'm just thinking what you said that a lot of doctors don't know about your condition and trust me, they don't know about mine either. (laughs) Um, But how does that how does your disability impact your approach to being a GP? I love that description of what a GP is. This is what I always try and tell people. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a detective. And now I feel like I basically am. Um, but I also get to do yeah. So I'm, I'm very pleased about this. Um, yeah, there is a lot of detective work in my job. And there's a lot of kind of like taking a whole list of stuff. And people will come in, particularly at the moment when they've waited months to see us because we're so completely overwrought. Um you know, they will come up with a whole list of stuff and it's our job to kind of like sift out what's the red herring, what's linked to X, all these different tests we need to do. And I love it for that. I love that bit. I think the way that my disability impacts on it is that I've got a really good understanding of the importance of that kind of holistic approach. Um, You know, I can appreciate that actually as a disabled person, so many things feed into my health every single day like I know that if I'm gonna go down to London and do a 10 mile protest roll one day I'm gonna have to like think about how I structure the rest of my week around that I'm gonna have to plan for the kind of unplannable almost with my symptoms and you know make sure I've got medications with me and make sure my team know when I need to just lie down and put my legs in the air and all that sort of stuff so I think that kind of comes into it I think it's really changed how I communicate with my patients and how my patients communicate with me um so you know I am very open about saying you know what impact is this having on you every day like how what things are you actually struggling with on a day-to-day basis that we can try and change because I think particularly when it comes to disabilities that require you know mobility aids and that sort of thing um a lot of people expect a doctor to magically go and now you need a wheelchair and it shall be provided unto you um yeah And like so many people don't use mobility aids because they're waiting for somebody to give them permission. They're waiting for somebody to kind of go, have you considered using a walking stick? But that's not a conversation that we as doctors are trained to have. 
um, or necessarily think about having because we assume that somebody else is going to do it, like an occupational therapist or a physio or something like that. Um, And so that's something I think I'm far more keyed into. And, you know, most weeks I'll talk to somebody who's really struggling with their mobility. And I'm sort of like, what is stopping you getting a walking stick? Like, what is scaring you about this or what is putting you off? Or is it just that you needed somebody to suggest it to you? You know, what are the things, the small, apparently small things that we can do that could make a huge improvement on your life. And I think it's really changed my way of thinking around that because I had so many medics when I first got my wheelchair going, oh, you don't need one of those. Are you sure that's a good idea? You know, do you want to get into that so soon? And I was kind of like, yeah, because actually for me, it's a quality of life thing. Like, I grew up around wheelchairs. My mum's a wheelchair user. So for me, getting a wheelchair was not like an admission of defeat. It was a, I want to go and have this incredible life I've worked so hard to get. And I'm not going to let my disability stop that. And if a wheelchair is what I need, I'll get a bloody wheelchair. Um, So I think it's really shaped the way I have those conversations. And it's shaped the way that people engage with me because patients look at me and they're like you have clearly seen a doctor before in your life you know what it's like to be on the other side of this conversation and so people will come in and immediately go what happened to you then um but most of the time and like that that's one of those things that you know as disabled people are just like oh god don't ask that's so inappropriate leave the hell alone but actually in my work context, that's them trying to level the playing field. That's them going, we're coming in with a massive power imbalance. And this is me acknowledging that actually you get this and trying to kind of like re rebalance that a little bit, mm. emphasizing that you, you are on a par with me. I don't mind that at all in the workplace. Um, and I've got my kind of set answers gone, but it does, it really does impact the way that my patients engage with me. And I think they're a lot more open with me sometimes as a result, because very little surprises me anymore. <laughs> I think that that's so, so interesting. And a couple of things like that came to mind while you were speaking. I mean, you know, I don't know if you listened, but we did an episode with Nina Tame and she was talking about her experience of becoming a wheelchair user and sort of her internalized ableism and the reluctance around using a wheelchair or any type of mobility aid and doctors sort of saying to her you know oh well at least you can still walk you know with crutches and Mm -hmm. things like that instead of using a wheelchair which exactly as you said improved her quality of life and I had a really similar experience with my trachea and ventilator Mm -hmm. you know doctors have sort of you know, said to me, you know, like various plans to eventually, you know, wean me off it or not have the track anymore, where actually it has massively improved my quality of life. And exactly as you said, allowed me to live the life that I've worked really goddamn hard to achieve. So I think that that's a really interesting way that you're approaching those conversations with patients. And just on your point around asking, you know, well, what happened to you? It never occurred to me that it, in your situation with patients, you're addressing that power imbalance. And I think that's so interesting because people don't often think of it in that way. I think, you know, particularly with disabled people, and this could just be my experience, but you sort of imagine yourself when dealing with a non-disabled person as, oh, their power imbalance is against me. But you're in a position of 
you know, authority and expertise when you're dealing with patients. So that's so interesting to me that you view it as a tip in your favor and you're trying to make patients feel more comfortable. Definitely. I think it's, I think people kind of perceive, and there's that internalized feeling that we have as disabled people often that we don't have the power, that we're always going into those relationships, as you say, kind of like on the back foot, the back wheel, you know, so there's always that kind of like internalized, oh goodness, they've just I mean, I think a lot of us do this in the activism spheres as well. It's like, oh, they've got us in as the token disabled person. Like, yep. yeah, that kind of like, you know, we're there to tick their box for them. And that's something I've had to really work on because I'm hyper aware that a lot of the opportunities I've got and I've been given have been because I am the only disabled person in the room. But also it's because I'm a disabled person who's actually saying all the stuff that needs to be said. And he's like kind of going, you know what? I don't care if you don't like me by the end of this conversation, you are at least going to listen to what I have to say. Um, And doing that is quite scary. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of us do kind of sit there going, would you be asking me this if I, to do this if I wasn't in a wheelchair? Am I ticking your diversity quotas? And it's a horrible feeling, but at the same time, I'm kind of trying to make myself go, you know what? Fine. I'll take your diversity quotas, but while I'm here, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> oh my God, if that's not the title of this episode, I'm going to be so angry. <laughs> yeah, ass kicking is ironically something I quite enjoy doing, which given my legs aren't very good, is quite impressive. And I want to like talk to you. So you mentioned about, you know, sort of eventually, you know, using mobility aids and things, but... When you decide, well, no, let me rephrase. When your mom told you you could not be a war correspondent um, <laughs> and you wanted to go into medicine, I think so many disabled people will think that they could be really good at that because of this feeling, like this inherently learned skill of empathy and understanding that patient perspective as you mentioned you know people know yes you've seen the doctor and you know you know what that experience is like but how did you manage and are still managing sort of the training of you know being a doctor and going through all of various rounds and rotations and all of that as a disabled person So it's been incredibly hard. And when I get a lot of disabled people asking me, reaching out on social media, all this sort of stuff, asking me how I do it and asking me whether it's worth trying and all this kind of stuff, because you're right. Like when you've spent this much time being a patient in big inverted commas, you learn how the systems work and you sit there and you go, yeah, I can do that actually. Um, And I think it's really important that we have that representation. Like the NHS is there to serve the whole population that includes us. And if we don't have disabled people on the staff, then we're not going to understand a vast group of our patients. Like, it's that simple. We need representation to do our job right. Um, and there's loads of small examples of that. But I think in a way, I was incredibly, incredibly privileged because I went into medical school, to nursing and then medical school, as what I thought was a non-disabled person, you know, Um And so by the time I became disabled or my disability decided to rear its ugly head in a proper way, um, I was already there. I was already doing it. And I think as a result, my medical school, because med schools get funding based on how many people they get through the course, not just whether you go in. They wanted me to graduate. They put a lot of time and money into training me 
So rightly so. So they had that impetus to kind of support me through it, which they did fantastically. I can't fault them on that. Um, But also I'd worked bloody hard and I was going to make it happen. But I very quickly came up against this realization that I have never seen a doctor in a wheelchair before. Um, And like there were mumblings because my medical school was within a hospital. So there were grumblings that there had been a guy once who was a wheelchair user and somebody had seen him coming out of an ambulance with a patient transfer once. And like everywhere I went, I kind of hear about this random guy who'd once worked in the emergency department who was a wheelchair user, like in kind of mythical terms. He was like some disability unicorn. It's like a walk this monster type of thing. And it's like, oh, there's been another guy. You'll be okay. I'm just like, I'll be okay on my own back. Thank you. I don't need some man to have done it first. Um, angry feminist moment. Um, but like, so- keep it coming. That's my brand. Keep it coming. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I kind of realized I didn't know any. Twitter was an absolute godsend for me then because I found like one or two who like become disabled once they were qualified and so all this sort of stuff. So I knew that. There were maybe a couple out there, um, but it meant I felt like I was literally reinventing the wheel, particularly when I qualified, um, because like the hospital I trained, I did my first year of placement. And they'd never had a doctor in a wheelchair before. They weren't sure how to do it. Nobody told me that I could train less than full time. So I went into my first job trying to work full time. Um, and I, you know, just doing things like the commute, I couldn't afford a car when I first started. So I was trying to commute on a train. We all know how entertaining it is trying to use a train as a wheelchair user. And I was doing it twice a day. Um, it was horrific. And then just wheeling up the hill from the station to the hospital, I was broken by the time I got to work. So it was really hard. It was really, really hard. And I was constantly having to negotiate and like, work out what reasonable adjustments I needed. Cause I think a lot of people expect us to turn up with a list of going, you need to do this, 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 and then I can work for you. And that's the end of it. That's never the end. That's the beginning of an ongoing conversation around, you know, the facilities and all that sort of stuff. Um, But we, both me and the people that were employing and training me were coming from a place of next to no knowledge and experience. And I was still new to being on wheels at that point anyway. So I was learning as I went and trying to learn to be a doctor. So it was really hard. And I very quickly went down to like 80% training. So four days a week and then down to, I'm now at 60. Um, So I work three days a week clinically and that's taken a lot of kind of trial and error. And I've swung around how much I work throughout my training. We've had to think about which rotations I can do. Um, You know, I went into medical school wanting to be a pediatric plastic surgeon specifically burns plastics because, you know, I'd really planned my life. Um, And I never wanted to be a GP. And so many people have kind of gone to me, oh, you're a GP because you're disabled. Um, Which at least makes a change from the normal thing you get as a woman in GP, which is, is it because you want to have children? Um, Oh, yes. All the time. time. Um, So, but it wasn't about that at all. Like I really wanted to do A&E when I was on my A&E job. I absolutely loved it. The only thing that stopped me was the rotors because I was like, I can't swing between night shifts and day shifts for the rest of my life. My body hates it. Um, But actually general practice really suits me because not only am I a wheelchair user, I have ADHD. And so having a new shiny thing, i.e. patient come in every 10 minutes needing something new is perfect for the way my brain works. So I think, you know, I've had to learn how to do it. My cat is currently trying to climb into a tortoise cage next to me. It's always chaos here. Um, But yeah, so I've had to kind of like 
learn how to work my career around my body and my brain. Um, And that's kind of what I always say to people when they're talking about wanting to go into medicine is have a go at everything. Never expect to end up in one place and feel like you're going to be disappointed if you go somewhere else, because all the perceptions I had of a medical career when I first went to medical school, I thought all doctors were saints. I thought they were like the nicest people on earth because I'd only ever met nice doctors. I can tell you some of them are assholes. Like, yeah, I was doing that. Um, so I think, you know, that's, it's been a lot of learning and unlearning and negotiation, but it is possible. I think it just takes a lot of, res- I hate the word resilience, but it does take a lot of determination to advocate for yourself in a career but actually as a doctor we advocate for patients every day so advocating for yourself should kind of come as second nature one would hope but it's not always easy (laughs) yeah I think it's really interesting what you said there because I think you know that it's really applicable to so many people when you go into a job thinking that you want to do this particular branch of it And then you decide that something else actually works better for you, either because you enjoy it more, it suits your lifestyle, or in our case, disability. And I've talked on in previous episodes about how I went into law school, so different to medical school, but, you know, comparable, and thinking I wanted to be a human rights barrister. And then, you know, sort of realized through various, you know, paths and avenues that, Actually, the charity sector suits me really well and suits my skill set, suits my disability and all of that. And I think what you said there about not thinking that you failed when if you didn't go into the first path, I think is really, really important um, for so many people. But you think your point about sort of the re- I, you know, you didn't use this phrase, but like essentially reasonable adjustments that you need on a job, I think. It's really difficult for disabled people because as much as we are problem solvers, like we've talked about, sometimes we don't know what the reasonable adjustments are that we need. And people expect us to be the experts and to know that. So it can be really difficult when you're having those conversations with an employer. But I think you're point about it sort of being trial and error and figuring it out along the way is an important lesson I think for all disabled people to sort of take away and learn. Yeah I say to every everyone basically going into employment with a disability my my golden rule is right go before you start like go and have a roll around feel like the queen you know have a roll around see what it's like work out why some of the challenges may be and kind of try and preempt some of those but don't beat yourself up thinking you need to do it all because you're not going to and ensure that it's the beginning of an ongoing conversation so book in you know a meeting two weeks into the beginning of your job to say look can we just go over the reasonable adjustments we've made see if there's anything else that's come up anything I've thought of that might help Um, use those problem solving skills we're all so good at but give yourself the time to work that out and don't feel rushed into that. And actually that's what employers want to hear as well. A lot of the time I'm speaking to employers and they're just like, what do we do? Like, how do we help? Because if they give us a list and we do it and then it doesn't work, you know, how do we encourage them to come back? I'm just like, make the appointment, like plan it in, make it a routine thing that you follow up. And if it's a lovely conversation where you go, I'm getting on fine. Thank you ever so much. Tatty. Bye-bye. Great. 
you've given yourself an extra 15 minutes for another cup of coffee. But if it's a, actually, I'm struggling with this, isn't this? You've given them the avenue to talk about that. Um, so I think, yeah, we need to stop seeing reasonable adjustments as a quick fix. Let's do this. We also need to start actually acknowledging that, you know, in healthcare, 55% of doctors get the reasonable adjustments they need. Only 55%. Um, you know, so, wow. yeah, because um, there's not actually no kind of legal time limit on how fast people need to provide said reasonable adjustments. And as doctors, we rotate a lot. So you can find that actually by the time the reasonable adjustments have been brought in, you're on a completely different job in a different hospital. Um, So, you know, there's lots of these kind of conversations to have. But I think as disabled people, we need to normalise making it an ongoing conversation. Yeah, I think that, you know, that that's a really challenging situation to be in where and I'm just blown away by that statistic of mm-hmm. 55% and it you know when we talk about reasonable adjustments as well it's it's not just for disability it could be because you have caring responsibilities for anyone you know it doesn't have to be a child but it could be and yeah that's it's a bit disheartening to hear yeah. that yeah it's really frustrating and it's like part of the, most of the work I've done with the BMA, I'm in the process of coming off the council because they've got a new lot in and I decided to take a step back for a few years. They've had they've had my soul for six years. Um, but, you know, most of the work I've done with them has been focused around disability and in supporting disabled doctors and medical students. And we did this huge survey. And, yeah, the data that came out of it, and that's one of the big stats, the data that came out of it was just heartbreaking. Um, and some of the qualitative stuff as well, the comments of people who've basically felt they've been forced out of medicine because of their disability um it's happening far too much and so if my you know lifetime career goal is to just make medicine an accessible profession and so be it um I'll try and do some other stuff along the way but yeah it's it's a conversation that we need to keep having because the NHS is failing both staff and as a result patients by not supporting these doctors and other health professionals much much better than they do yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's only going to improve the situation for disabled patients when you, as you said earlier, have a diverse group of doctors because it won't be that, you know, you've never experienced an interaction with a doctor who knew about your disability. You know, if if we have more disabled people in the medical field, then that likelihood is going to increase. But I want to talk about your experience with the Women's Equality Party. So you said that you went into a conference and I came out a member. So I suppose talk me through that. You know, what prompted you to explore it and sort of what has that experience been like? Because it's, it's very different being a political party leader and being a GP. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's funny. There are definitely some kind of skills that go both ways. Um, negotiation, mainly. Um, but I think, like, so, yeah, I turned up to the conference, did my panel first thing in the morning on women's health, and I just kind of, like, sat there going, firstly, they had been so phenomenal about all the access stuff. Like, months before, they were sort of like, right, so, um, you know, 
we've found you this hotel. Can you just quickly check this and make sure that the room is everything you need it to be? Um, we've got this staging, but there's a ramp on it. Um, can we just check the weight of your chair? Because if it's a power chair, then we might need something more sturdy. You know, how wide is it? Like they really thought about everything. So I just turned up and it was all done for me. And that was the first time. And I go and speak at a lot of conferences, um, even now. And that still remains one of the best experiences I've had about organizers managing and handling disability and part of that is down to the incredible disabled women that came before me people like Athena Stevens who's still a really close friend like you know they'd done a lot of that work and done a lot of that kind of prep with them but yeah so I turned up and I was already really impressed right um I had dabbled with party politics a bit in the past my brother worked for the Labour Party for a wee while um and I'd like campaigned a little bit for Nick Clegg when he told us he was going to get rid of tuition fees. Um, yeah. We've all, we all been there. We've yeah. all been there. Mm-hmm. I was the first year to pay full fees at medical school and I will never quite forgive him for that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I dabbled a little bit, but I've always ultimately felt let down. I felt like none of the parties really spoke to me. Um, and it was just, there was just so much infighting and all of that kind of crap that came with it. Um, so I ended up in trade union politics, BMA, which is, you know, still quite a lot of infighting and crap. Like, let's be honest, it's trade union. We all feel very passionately about what we do and we're going to flare up occasionally as a result. Um, but I'd kind of written off party politics altogether and was just going, I'd never heard of the Women's Equality Party. I knew who Sandy Toxvig was. She was one of the co-founders. Seemed like a nice idea to go. Um, and I, they said, look, stay for the whole the whole day stay for tomorrow if you want well not a problem like stay as long as you like um they tell me that they they might possibly have invited me in the hope that they could reel me in um, I'm, I'm taking that as a massive compliment I don't know how true that is um I don't know whether they just then got me and thought right let's make it feel special um but you know I went along and I just found myself surrounded by this incredible kind of feeling of sisterhood but also determination to make change and like looking at the world from a perspective of equality is better for everyone and it's that simple and kind of looking at politics and going we don't have to do it the way it's always been done we don't have to approach politics in a kind of like barge in win all the elections yell at the other parties get into government scream at the prime minister on pmqs every week and then go away again like we don't have to do politics that way and we can shape it and we can approach it in a whole new way and you know like I'm not expecting us to roll into number 10 any day soon partly because it's got a step into it um but we are changing the ways that other parties do politics um and we're changing the conversation in every election we contest and that was kind of the feeling I got when I was there I was like left so full of excitement and enthusiasm for politics as I wanted it to be, politics as it should be, and the potential of that. Um, So, yeah, I just completely fell into it, as I want to do. Um, And within, like, a few months, somebody turned up on my doorstep in Leeds where I'd moved after quite a spectacular breakdown um, alone, tried to rebuild my life. Um, Somebody who's now a very, very close friend basically turned up on my doorstep with a bottle of wine and said we're going to drink this. And by the end of it, you're going to agree to be our council candidate. Um, And lo and behold, I did. Um, Because I'm very easily bribed. It transpires, which is a terrible thing for a politician to say. Um, But yeah, so I think it's always been that kind of organisation where um, 
they we don't care about where you come from your backstory necessarily we don't see that as a barrier to anyone um Mm. entering politics and we're very much about encouraging people who would not normally consider themselves politicians to get involved and that doesn't necessarily mean you know manning the barricades womaning the barricades um and contesting every election going but there's so much that everyone can do male or female or neither um you know there's so much that everyone can do to make change happen in politics from so many different perspectives and angles and increasing the diversity of representation in politics is at the key of everything we do you know we have mandy reed our leader is the first ever black openly bisexual woman to lead a political party she's the first ever black political party leader in the uk like which is ludicrous like there should have been so many more amazing yeah. coming forward before then um but you know we should have been supporting we should have been supporting that community we should have been encouraging more diversity across the political spectrum and as a society we've let so many people down um so yeah you know we've done amazing things we've got amazing representatives from every walk of life you can imagine and role of life and I love it it honestly it brings me so much joy it is different to being a GP but it's probably the most important thing I do on a day-to-day basis so for people who don't know much about the women's equality party I think the first thing that people think of is that it is only for women or that they only campaign on women's issues so how would you describe the party to people who either don't know or have that preconception so it's a really good point. We do have male members. We have we had a male candidate in the last local elections. Um, I think it, we start at the for, at the baseline of equality is better for everyone. OK. And yes, 52 percent of the population, of, i.e. women, have been massively let down by politics in the past. You know, we we've only recently been allowed to vote for the love of goodness. You know, <laughs> like we've got. God, yeah. Um, And so, you know, there's so much that as a society we need to do to change things. But with the understanding that actually if you make things better for women, you make things better for everyone. So a really simple example is childcare. Like, um, you know, shared parental leave massively benefits men. Mm. It improves the gender pay gap, which actually does have huge benefits for men in the workplace. You know, we can talk about the fact that childcare is prohibitively expensive. And it's meaning that a lot of people, primarily women, are leaving the workplace altogether um, because they can't afford to work and have someone look after their children. Like it doesn't make financial sense. So, you know, all of these things, if we can prove this for women, it makes things better for families as a whole. It makes things better for men throughout society. And that's kind of the baseline we're at. It's just like, we're not, it's not about, you know, man hating. It's not about, you know, tackling. It's not about taking down men and saying, you've had it too good for too long. And now we want all of your power and all of your, I mean, we do want all the power, but we want to share it. Yeah, I was going to say, no, that, that sounds quite nice. <laughs> I know, you know, definite perks. But I mean, you know, we we need to start talking about things like, you know, ending violence against women and girls, which is one of our absolute top priorities. You know, when we talk about that, a lot of people come back at us and go, you know, men are victims of violence too. Yes, they are. But actually, when we're not talking about the impact of it on 51% of the population, who do experience it far more, particularly in their homes and that sort of thing, then, you know, the impact of that has on 
men is huge. The impact of violence against women and girls on men is vast because they grow up in those households where that violence and abuse is being perpetrated. Mm. That has an impact on how they grow, on how they develop, on who they turn into, on their career opportunities, so many things because we're not supporting the women who do the majority of the work raising them. And so, you know, we have to have these conversations because it makes everything better as a society. And that's, for me, what lies at the heart of the Women's Equality Party. It's saying, yes, you know, it does what it says on the tin. It's about women's equality. But we have to consider how much that impacts everything we do as a society. And if you look at the governments national, internationally that are getting this right, they have better outcomes on every single level. Look at Finland. I love Finland. I've never been. Yeah. But I want to go because you know what? The five parties that make up the government because they have proportional representation, my God, the five parties that make up the government in Finland are all run by women. Their prime minister was 34 when she started. And you know which countries had the best outcomes economically and health-wise for COVID in Europe? It's been Finland, because trust in their government has been higher than any other nation in Europe. They have consistently nailed it, and their economy is working far better. They've had far fewer deaths. And oh my goodness, they've actually looked after disabled people during the pandemic. Like... Finland has done so much better on a global economic level than we have through a pandemic because we had women's voices around the table. And they have one of the few, they have the most gender balanced government in Europe. That makes a difference. Uh. And so when we hit things like COVID, if we don't have that representation, if we don't have that balance, the whole country suffers. And that's exactly what we've seen. Yeah, I mean... When I think about throughout COVID, the amount of times I felt gaslit by our government for, you know, not acknowledging our issues, not taking them seriously enough and still continuing to not appreciate the very real fear that disabled people still have around COVID and sort of safety measures and all of that. You know, you just think there's got to be a better way. And I think, you know, I... I didn't know all of those, you know, points about Finland and about, you know, all of the direct positives that you can see from a diverse, you know, political party and a diverse leadership. I I think that that's so fascinating. And the only party that actually actively campaigned for disabled people through the pandemic. You know, we were outside Parliament, like mm. yelling about access to vaccinations and access to healthcare through the pandemic. Nobody else was doing that. Nobody else wanted to talk about the fact that disabled people were being massively let down and being allowed to die in hugely disproportionate numbers because our government did not prioritise our community mm. at all and did not even acknowledge the additional risk we were and remain under. And I think that's really key, because once you talk about equality for women, you talk about equality for disabled people, you talk about equality for LGBTQ people, you talk about equality for people from from the global ethnic minorities and global ethnic majorities and all other races. You know, we talk about these things, but we don't do that if we don't start from a basis of equality is better for everyone. So I think that that... That's all really, really valid. And I'm really interested because you are disabled, you are female, you're a feminist, and I'm right that you're also a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. So how, you know, this is a topic I'm super 
interested in is the intersectionality Mm -hmm. of all of those identities. And I know that, you know, sometimes it, I mean, I can say from like my experience of being disabled and being a woman, but, you know, sometimes you almost don't know when you're in an instance of discrimination, which part of my identity is leading to this. So I I suppose my question for you is sort of how do you manage all of those parts of your identity which can directly cause, I don't want to say cause, but be the reason for discrimination or a negative attitude? So it's a really, really good question. It's what I haven't actually been asked before. So thank you. Um, I think it is it is quite a challenging one. You know, I only came out as queer like four years ago. And, you know, I'm now in my first long term relationship with a woman. Um, and so that's been quite an interesting thing to negotiate. And actually, one of the things we've realized is that a lot of people, because she is, you know, a woman of a similar age to me, she's not visibly disabled. And so people kind of assume that she's my carer. Um, in a way that they didn't necessarily when I was with a man. Um, but when we go places together, people look at her and they go, oh, that's nice. You know, she's got a care of a similar age. They clearly have similar interests. And I was like, and then, you know, I snog her in public and everyone's like, oh, my God, not only is the disabled person kissing someone, but they're kissing someone of the same sex. And also they probably think, wow, that's wildly unprofessional. <laughs> yeah, my God, so many ethics codes being broken in my relationship. Um, so I think. I've always kind of been very much of the out and proud and gobby about it attitude to every part of my personality and my identity. Um, So when I came out, I came out big time, you know, I queer code everywhere. And I think it's, it's really helped me kind of engage with this part of my identity that I hadn't really before I'd kind of gone yeah that's just a bit too much to deal with I don't need to deal with that and I think it did put me off coming out for a long time was kind of like you know a really close friend of mine who I have subsequently told off when I um came out was just like oh did you not have enough minority characteristics Hannah and I was like I know you're joking about that but that's exactly what I've been worrying about for years was people kind of looking going, oh, it's just because everyone knows she's disabled now, so she needed a new thing. And then when I got diagnosed with ADHD as well, they're just like, oh, and now you're neurodivergent. I was like, that's actually been a lifelong thing. And as a medic, you should have probably guessed it sooner. Um, But, you know, so I think it has kind of weighed on my mind a little bit of how many characteristics can I pick up, really? Um, But... At the same time, I think it's really, really important that we see intersectionality um, and that as young and that young people see intersectionality. Like, so my kind of GP special interest is gender, sexuality, and sexual well-being, which in itself is not a special interest most people <laughs> have as a GP. It's the kind of like slightly icky stuff that a lot of us would like to stay away from. We'll do yeah. like sexual health. Um, and we'll do, you know, some people will talk a bit about gender um, and a lot of it's about kind of menopause and women's health, which is incredibly important, but it's not what gets me out of bed in the morning. I want to be talking about, do people have happy sex lives? Whatever that may mean for them. And do people feel comfortable coming out to them healthcare professional? Because that's a really freaking important conversation. And as somebody who is quite femme presenting, I've seen what happens when people get that wrong. 
Um, and you know, yeah. if asking me about what contraception I'm on, and am I trying to get pregnant if I'm in a relationship and not using contraception? I was like, well, my girlfriend is great in many ways, but she can't do that. Um, so, you know, I've seen when it goes wrong, and I've experienced that. And so, I think it's really important that actually we have visibly disabled people talking about sex publicly. And I know how powerful that is. Um, so, yeah, I think it has shaped who I am and what I specialize in and what I talk about on the regular, because I know how important it is for disabled young people to kind of go, she's queer, she is sexually active, and she's talking about how I can do that too and how I can be that person. Mm. Um, And unless we're visibly having that conversation, we are not supporting the next generation as well as we could. And that's something that I'm in a really privileged position to be able to do. My parents have given up on me not talking about sex. So they're just, my dad's a priest. So you can imagine how hilarious this is. Oh um, my God. <laughs> to be a fly on the wall at your family dinner would be a joy. Actually, I was sitting on a train the other day and my dad was coming down because he really likes trains. So he just wanted a train ride. Um, and he was sitting there in his dog collar, chattering away to me. And I'm reading a book called The Vagina Bible. Um, <laughs> I saw your Instagram story of reading that book. I, you needed to have included that you were sitting with a priest. Yeah. It's a, a comedy value is gold. <laughs> it was just, it's amazing. But actually, I think it's really important. And my parents are now very kind of like, oh, look, Hannah's talking about sex again. That's fine. Um, but they get it. They get that it's important. They had four kids. I know that I wasn't divine conception. So, yeah, <laughs> let's talk more about sex. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, especially for, you know, we'll get into the, like, queer side of that in a second, but I think especially for disabled people, because, first of all, everyone assumes that we're asexual. hmm no, Obviously. No, of course, it's because no one could ever imagine that, oh, A, that we are sexual beings or that anyone could be remotely interested in us in that way i mean shock horror oh my god Um, our partners must be saints that's kind of oh my god absolutely no benefits them whatsoever Um, (laughs) but no i completely agree and i think you know in the medical space as well i mean every time i go for an x-ray or a ct or you know whatever it Maybe I sort of, whoever I'm with, usually my dad. So I think we have similar experiences here. I always have a bet with him on, are they going to bother asking me if I am if I might be pregnant? Mm-hmm. Or when my last period was, which I know they would ask a non-disabled woman of my age. Yeah. And it's always, you know, it's always a bet. And, you know, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised when they do, but that's so wrong that, yeah. first of all, that I have this worry. Not worry, because obviously I know the risks if I was, but a lot of people don't. And, you know, it could have very bad medical implications. But also, I shouldn't be pleased when someone bothers to ask me because, I mean, medical negligence aside, but like just that preconception of disability and sex. But I think as well in the... You know, you said at the beginning that you and I connected first around looking at disabled women's access to cervical screenings because of the lack of hoists. And just sexual health of disabled people is so low on the agenda for so many people. And it's so 
difficult to try and, you know, talk to medical professionals about that and about contraception. A lot of disabled women really struggle to access it or they're put on it, you know, and all of these like inferences around what we want in terms of like sexual health and all that. But I think as well, if we are considered as a sexual being by a medical professional, it's always that we're straight. And yes. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting to me, though, that all of these assumptions are made. And I think it's fantastic that you are challenging those and trying to like encourage conversation around it and then try it will have a knock-on effect for your patients I imagine like I suppose my question is like do you have many disabled patients that you know you think that your lived experience as disabled woman and member of the LGBT community has benefited in some way so I think disabled patients yes um, and having a disabled doctor has definitely benefited them. And, you know, all my colleagues would agree with that. Um, I'm the one that's regularly asking the, you know, questions of, are you pushing yourself to a somewhat ridiculous degree without any mobility aids or support? And why are you doing that? And how can we help you? And I think sometimes we need to speak frankly about this. And I'm notoriously blunt. Um, as you can probably tell, there's there's not much filter goes on here, um, which I think makes me ideal for talking about sex a lot, really. Um, so, yes, on that front, disabled LGBTQIA patients, I haven't come across that many out. And I think, you know, there's part different reasons for that. You know, I've never worked in one place for more than a year. Um, so by the time the news gets around and because you're a trainee, like your special interests aren't necessarily listed on the website. So until someone gets to know you and what we often find is that patients, um, patients who are potentially struggling with their sexuality or gender um, will kind of doctor not doctor shop, but well, yeah, doctor shop a little bit. And so they'll kind of come in with something completely random and you're sitting there going, why have you come in with this? Like, this is not a normal GP, like coming in with something that was a problem 10 years ago, just to see whether it could still be an issue, that kind of thing with no symptoms. And you're just like, what is going on here? But they're the ones that at the end of the consultation may kind of like hand on the door handle go, oh, and by the way, I think I'm trans. Or, oh, and by the way, can I talk to you about this? And you're just like, sit back down, come on, let's do this. Let's talk this through. Um, so I think, you know, there's a far longer process with many members of the LGBTQ community, understandably, um, where they want to know that they can trust their health professional. Because so many of us have experienced intentional and unintentional homophobia um, that I think, you know, there is a lot of anxiety around doing that. And we know that, you know, for example, lesbian, the lesbian community are more likely to access A&E than they are their GP. That's fascinating. Um, and I think that's because of a lot of the presumptions that are made and it means it's a one-off and you don't build those relationships. But actually that relationship, that con continuity of care that a GP can provide that A&E can't, is key. And we know that it leads to better health outcomes long term. So we need to get better as 
professionals and you know I queer code massively at work like I have rainbow cups I'm roundly mocked on a daily basis for the number of rainbows in one room like I have pride toms on I have rainbow laces on my sequin converse my rucksack has got a massive rainbow on it I'm like so out and proud um because it's really important and because I want any young person who comes into my room any older person who comes into my room to go you know what either she really really loves the NHS or um like she's at least an ally um and that's important and that matters and it means that you go into that room and you know you're safe and I until my dying day as a GP will be covered in freaking rainbows because I want that teenager or that much much older person to feel they can come out and ask the questions that they've been scared to so if I get mocked for wearing rainbows all the time I'm okay with it she said wearing a t-shirt that says sounds gay I'm in yeah, I was going to say, when you, you know, so like overtly a member of the community, I was going to say, well, you do have a shirt that literally says, sounds gay, I'm in. And, <laughs> you know, which I, you know, I absolutely adore and have considered buying myself. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I might have to. It's so like, Spark Company, if you're interested in giving me and Hannah a discount, much appreciate it. Um, we are giving them so many plugs in this episode. I mean, I'm I know. throwing the hell out of this. I, I'm definitely going to be tagging them in all of this and going, hey, two models. Um, but I think that's so, so important, the work that you're doing and the safe space that you're creating for your patients and hopefully influencing other medical professionals to be doing the same. I'm going to have a word with my mom after this about, you know, what, I mean, she does work in A&E, but like, what could she either be doing or just be aware of with her patients? Um, Amazing campaigns. The one that really everyone should look at patient or not is the NHS rainbow badge campaign, um, Mm. which was set up way before COVID, way before the rainbow was kind of, stolen um for the nhs which i'm still a little bit mad about my girlfriend and i when we're covered in rainbows walking along just tell people we're like a massive nhs fan convention um (laughs) but like they have the rainbow badges which is amazing i think i actually have mine here yeah so it's like literally a badge that is a rainbow that has the nhs logo on it it, the idea is that it shows patients and staff that you are an ally of the community, if not member of it, and that you are a safe person to talk about because so many of us have experienced negative behaviours from healthcare professionals that this is a way of kind of symbolising that I am a safe person to talk to. Um, So, yeah, there are some campaigns out there that are doing a lot of really great work to try and, yeah, get health professionals talking about this and being safe spaces for patients, which we desperately need. So I want to ask you sort of if you could give a bit of advice to listeners either or both around sort of the medical side of your life and the political side of your life what advice would you want disabled people to really take away from your work your life and our conversation so I guess I hope if anything comes from my work in both fields I want it to be that other disabled people can see a place for themselves there. I want other disabled people to see me and go, I can be a doctor. I want other disabled people to see me and go, I can be a politician. Um, because I come from this, I I can't overemphasize enough how much privilege I have had 
growing up as growing up as a non-disabled woman whose parents really prioritized her education, even though we have no money growing up, um, you know, who really prioritized education, who really allowed me to believe that I could do literally anything my brothers could do, who, you know, the day I got my diagnosis, I phoned my mum and her immediate response was, that's great, darling. Do you have any lectures today? And I was like, mum, I'm disabled. And she's like, so am I. And I read Laura at Cambridge. What's your point? Get back to work. But <laughs> I need to meet your parents. I just feel that we have so much to talk about. Right. But like, I think it's, you know, I come from this massive place of privilege and I have doctor in front of my name. And that can't be underestimated at all. I can get into rooms purely on the fact that I have a medical degree, which is bonkers. I mean, that's if I can literally get into the room, which isn't always a guarantee. But, you yeah. know. I come from a place of massive privilege where I've always been brought up to believe I could do whatever I wanted, whether or not my legs were working properly, whether or not my brain was having a wonky day, you know, I could do it. And I know so many young people with disabilities are told from almost the day they're born that they're not expected to achieve much, which drives me insane. And so if I can help counter that narrative, I'm happy. I've done my job. And that is all I really want to achieve. And this is a really helpful conversation because my coach has been asking what my mission in life is for like four months now. And I haven't been able to tell her and I've just worked it out. So thank you for that, Emma. I know <laughs> I've worked out my mission in life. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for answering the meaning of my life. Um, so, yeah, I hope if there's any advice, it's give it a go, but find your people. There are so many incredible disabled people who have shaped my career, my thinking, given me opportunities, got me platforms. Um, like I had the privilege of interviewing Alan Benson last week for a podcast. And Alan's been a friend and mentor of mine for years now. Mm. He's like, honestly, my absolute hero. He got his MBE yesterday and I did a I saw, I, I'm so excited. But, you know, he is the reason I felt able to get on a train which is the reason I was able to practice as a doctor, which is the reason I now have my crazy career. And he was the first person to give me a speaking gig ever. Like, so, you know, there are so many amazing people out there. Social media is obviously a mine of them um, who have supported me in small ways that they might not even acknowledge. She said, looking at Emma Vogelman very hard. Um, you know, everybody, we are supporting each other and finding your tribe is so important, whatever you want to do. And if that's politics or medicine, then fine. Hi. Follow me on Twitter and drop me a DM and we'll get you in. Not a problem. I I love that so much. And I I am I'm just sort of thinking, you know, as we're sort of getting like wrapping up the episode, I'm just thinking, God, I just want to keep talking to you <laughs> about all of the amazing Not a problem. <laughs> yeah, we'll just do a part two. Um, but no, it's it's so I I hate the word inspiring. But I feel like it's really apt here, though. All of the things that you're doing to champion, like to champion disabled people, women, and members of the queer community, and then the beautiful intersection of all of those communities, which do exist to anyone who thinks that they don't. <laughs> they do, in fact, exist. But I just want to say the biggest thank you for being on the wheelchair activist and for having such an interesting and open conversation with me. I have, I, I certainly have taken so much from it and I really think listeners will as well. So thank you. Honestly, thank you for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure. And I've now got to go and write down what my mission in life is before I forget it for my next coaching session. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Anna.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with the amazing Dr. Hannah Barham-Brown. I absolutely loved talking to Hannah about the amazing work she's doing for women, for disabled people, and for members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Before you go, I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist, and we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work, which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.